Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the From the Back Tees podcast, a podcast from the Back Tees. I'm your co-host as always, Jerry Lou, and more so as always, joining me is the founder and the other co-host of the podcast, Zachary Pencer. Zach, how you doing today, buddy? I'm doing pretty good. How about you? I'm all right. Don't nobody worry about me. We don't really have a way to define this show or like a format or minutes from last meeting or whatever. We have we have Tucker Booth extraordinaire here. He is the newest member. Well, I don't know. Wait, Denunzio might be the newest member. I don't know. These guys are yeah, like Denunzio. Tied. They're but, tied. But uh, oh man, I'm not even special enough to be the newest member. Dang man. I don't know if that's a moniker you want. Who knows? I mean, Five seconds, dude. Nice. Okay. Look, I remember when I was in the service, like when you reported to the ship, you were the new guy until somebody else reported, and usually a new guy reported every week, but I was the new guy for two months, and that really sucked. So that just, I don't know if you want that title, but uh, Tucker, welcome, uh, welcome to the team. Welcome to the show, man. Thanks, guys. I'm really excited to be here. This has kind of been a dream of mine to finally get to dork out about my golf dorkitude with other golf dorks. So thanks a lot. I'm excited, dude. I'm Absolutely. thrilled. What's, what's going on, so boys? To have you. Yeah, no, it's I'm, I'm I've really been getting pretty geeked about all this. You know, I've got 25, 30 different things that I'm doing all the time, but this one seems like something I've really been wanting to sink my teeth into. So I'm thrilled to be involved. And I'm looking forward to a bunch of cool stuff coming down the pipe very soon. Well, not to mention, like, some of your gets, it sounds like, uh, to have been, like, uh, uh, legendary to boot. I mean, uh, Rick Riley, to name one of them, he, he's got a couple pieces I remember, like, for ESPN that were about, like, being a fisherman. But it was, like, a metaphorical sense or whatever. And I was just like, yeah, because Rick Riley is the guy who gets everything. And, and for someone to get their hands on Rick Riley, I'd be like, well, shoot. I mean, that's a well of information right there, right? Well, yeah, and just to give a little background for the listeners that haven't read the piece that I just published with From the Back Tees, I met Rick Riley and his wife Cynthia in the most serendipitous kind of way. I am a professional musician and entertainer that does all different types of music stuff. I sing, I play guitar, I play piano, I DJ, I can do production work for the music and, and film industry, I do voice acting. So I am online on a website called thumbtack.com, and I am over the past five years become their number one L.A. and Orange County solo musician and pro entertainer. Oh, and get the hell out of here. That's great. Yeah, I'm super proud. It took seven, eight years to build that reputation on there, but now I've got 165 star reviews and all these great ratings and whatnot, and I've been hired a couple hundred times. And so now, thanks to that, people are finding me through Thumbtack instead of me having to go out and find them. You just mentioned fishing. That's the analogy there was it used to be I had to put out all these lines and try and get bites. And now they're all coming and jumping into the boat. I mean, I'm officially just all I got to do is spear these things when they come in the boat and I got them. And that's how Rick and Cynthia found me. She said, I was searching around trying to find an entertainer for our Christmas party that they have every year that could come to their home and play their priceless Steinway piano. They've got this legendary antique Steinway from like 150 years ago. They got it in perfect shape. They just had it tuned. They wanted someone to come in and play it, but they weren't looking for just classical background. They wanted someone that was a little bit more of a people person and a little bit more of a folky, folk rocky kind of guy. So she said, you seem like the guy. You're obviously sticking out all over the place. But since you live nearby, I live in Redondo Beach out here in L.A., and they live in Hermosa Beach, which is like five minutes away. 
would you be willing to come over and do an audition? And at this point, I didn't know she was married to Rick. She was just Cynthia R. on Thumbtack. And I go, oh, yeah, sure. I'm happy to come over. So I came over in the morning the next day, and she meets me at the door. And actually, she takes me to the piano. So I'm, I don't even see Rick. I just go in, and I play one song. I play Norwegian Wood by the Beatles. And I kind of oh, stop. Is it, do you, I do you do that. Is it a different song depending on the piano? Well, I think Norwegian Wood for me is a nice, easy one where I... I thought, all right, come oh, on. Oh, okay. okay. You want to go on something? You don't want to shoot the moon and miss, you know, on a on a fancy piano. I didn't know if you wanted if there was a certain song out there that showed off your scale without, like, like you said, without being too hard. Like, let's just call it like a two hundred yard button driver right down the middle or something. Where it's like, yeah, we all could do that, but do we? No, we don't. What's our go to? The driver is is Paco Bell's Canon in D. You know, really want to show off. That's what you do. But the miss ratio goes up like a fancy driver. So Norwegian Wood is my perfect club, if you will. Well, it's the high. It's not. It's not the driver. But you know, okay. So I play this. She's obviously impressed, and she goes, "Well, you're hired." Like I'm thinking, I'm gonna have to jump through five hoops here in one song, and I'm in. And I go, "Well, great." You know, so now I'm chilling, and I'm asking her questions about what the party's for, and they've got a brand new grandchild, and it's his first grandbaby, and all this. And as she says this, Rick kind of ambles into the room, giving me his big Cheshire cat grin, and goes, "Hey, I'm Rick. Nice to meet you." And instantly, I know this face, not just because he was the face on the back column of Sports Illustrated for all the years of my childhood when I had a subscription to Sports Illustrated, but he was on Monday Night Football when, you know, in the era with uh, Mike oh Tirico. God, he was, was he? Young and all that. that. You know, so I know this face, you know, and, and I know not just that, but he's covering NBA playoffs and he's hitting up all the NBA players with snarky questions and He's popping up at the Masters, and he's popping up at the U.S. Open, and he's he's like a Tom Rinaldi, only less of a bootlicking butt kisser. He's like the less bootlicking Tom Rinaldi to me. You know, he obviously is a little more <laughs> not trying to win over every single person. He's not worried about getting fired. You know, they know who he is. So I'd say, you know, that was Rick, and and I go, Rick, I not only know you, I'm a big fan from childhood of you. And obviously, that was probably a good thing for him to say. And this is a guy in his 60s, kind of the limelight of his time of being popular. And he said, well, I'm semi-retired now. And we've been living half the year in Florence, Italy, and half the year in Hermosa Beach. And I go, sounds like a pretty good life, man. And he goes, yeah, but I'm trying to write one book that's kind of, you know, putting me back on the map again. And uh, we didn't get to that book until the night of the performance. But after I performed for all of his family and friends at this party... And had won them all over. And everyone was like, this was just the most magical night. It really was. I have to say, not all parties are created equal. But the Riley's Christmas party was phenomenal. It went super duper well. We started on piano. And we ended up with my guitar out doing sing-alongs, Christmas carols, and classic standards, and legendary classic rock songs, and all this. And everyone's singing. I got his friend singing. I got grandpa pulling out the guitar and playing stuff. I mean, it, it was magical. Their grandbaby came up at the end of the night. And was reaching his hand out to me, like, take my hand, let's do this. I mean, they were so overwhelmingly thrilled. And so now here's me and Rick sitting in the aftermath, you know, tipping a cold one, just celebrating this night. And I say, so whatever, you know, you didn't tell me about the book. What, what's that about, man? I love, I love sports books. What's it about? And he goes, I'm writing a book about Trump and how he cheats at golf. And then he gets this big kind of conspiratorial grin on his face. And I go, that sounds awesome. 
Like the thought of Rick Riley, of all people, the guy who called Tiger a cheapskate and not someone to be admired at the height of his popularity, you know, the guy that always the, the, the elephant. I go, wow, here he is taking on the biggest elephant in the room right now. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> and you can golf as before. Wow. So I said, this sounds awesome. I totally want to read it. I will buy a copy the minute it comes out. And he said, well, it's going to be a few months. So this just dropped like last about three weeks ago. So it is brand new on the shelves. It's called Commander in Cheat. Commander in Cheat. It's a great golf name. Explains Trump. That's what it's called. So but I mean, really, he had it at golf and Trump. He had it in both places. Now I, I hate to say it, and maybe this will help sell copies, obviously, for Rick Riley. But I mean, I'm intrigued enough, regardless of whether whatever side of the fence you sit on. Uh, is the is this book just about Trump cheating in golf? Because I feel like if we put together all the fun cheating stories we've heard, or like people we know that cheated. OJ Simpson is a big one, like probably the biggest I've heard that cheats on the golf course. But I feel like we, we the best we can do is fill a pamphlet, not a whole book. What is this book really about? Do you have any idea more than just the title? Well, I read it and I reviewed it, and that's one of the first pieces that we put out through from the back tees. So there's your plug. Uh, what I wanted to do was a book review, but then I also felt like for the profile and the review, I wanted to write myself into the piece, which I won't do every time. But I thought it was important to have full disclosure for the Riley piece, so that oh, people could sniff cool. around on my Twitter and see photos of us hanging out and stuff. So I, I wrote the review and I kept it as critical and fair as possible. But then I also was called him and said, I want to do an interview so I can get a couple of exclusive quotes. Anything will do a text message, interview, email, however you want to do it, Rick. I know you're busy. And he says, Hey, I'm free at noon today. Want to come over to the house? And I'm going, really? He gave me unprecedented access. I got to sit at the table in his living room, put out my voice recorder, and I got 30 solid minutes of Rick dishing on the book. So I've got it straight from the horse's mouth now, not just Perfect. my own opinions from reading the book. My opinion is that it kind of comes off like a Michael Moore treatise or something. It's, it's using golf as the metaphor to explain why he doesn't just cheat at golf. He cheats at everything. He cheats at it, business. It, it, cheats it, on his girl. He yeah. cheats well, listen, you know, with elections. He's a cheater. I you apologize. Full, full disclosure, and it wasn't like a shameless plug whatsoever, but, I mean, I did read uh, the piece and everything. So, I mean, I was just more so – Buttering up people, so to speak, to be like, oh, do I need to go buy a hardback that's 400 pages that just has to do with like, I mean, let's, I, like I said, I don't mind if I get spoiler alerts sometimes. Sometimes sure. that might dictate if I really want to invest in something. And I think we really need to know what more might be, in, or some people might need to know what more is in the book, but you can find that on our website. So Yeah, I mean, it give you just a little taste without spoiling too much. He really delves into all of the interpersonal relationships that he's made through golf, meaning Riley, including Trump, because that's how they became friends. He covered Trump with some pretty pro-ams, and he also uh, wrote him into an earlier book of his called Who's Your Caddy? So that's a book where Riley's going around with all of these famous people, not just golfers, but John Daly and Gary Player. And it was a great book. It was a, it was a yeah. really big uh, You know, people, Lee Iacocca. I mean, he's got all these different types of people. And this is probably like uh, early millennia, like 2003 or so. So anyways, he had a piece with Trump where Trump, he was supposed to be caddying for him because that was the whole premise was I'm caddying for all these famous people. And he shows up for Trump, and Trump goes, no, nah, man, we're playing 18 holes. You're my playing partner. Let's go. And so it was this whole different thing. Trump flipped the script on him. And Rick was saying in the book that 
it's like pure Trump maliciousness back in 2003. That's the term he used, Trump maliciousness. Trump is his own deal. He's his own universe. He's his own circus. And back in 03, he wasn't politically polarizing in the same way that he is now. So though he surely says Trump cheats, Trump embellishes, Trump introduces me to everyone as the owner of Sports Illustrated versus just like one of the staff. <laughs> Everything is embellished. And of course, Trump embellishes his score in the round. Trump embellishes his lie, kicks his ball and foozles his ball out the rough, has the caddies run ahead and make sure the ball in the water's back on the shore. You know, he says oh, to he Trump... Did, oh, he did the Mr. Burns treatment? You're kidding me. No, that's what he says. Is the, He watches and blasts the ball into the water hazard and they get up and the caddies have scurried ahead and the ball's back on the fairway. He's he never goes, hit one in the water. He said, Donald, I, I watched you hit it in the hazard. And Donald goes, well, the shore must have brought it in. I mean, it's all these kind of anecdotes that he's... That oh, he's that just, sounds weird. The shore must have brought it in. Wow. Like, you just Trump said anything, but like, I killed the turtle. Oh, well. I mean, it's like, no, the shore <laughs> brought it in. <laughs> well, I mean, without getting too deep into the book, yeah, he talks about environmental things that happen on the golf courses that he cheats on tax breaks that he gets through his golf courses where he cheats the government and the taxpayer. He talks about animals that he keeps penned up like goats and goat pens that give really? him tax breaks because they've got wildlife that they're preserving yeah, on the I've court. Yeah, I've seen stuff like, like that. Pens that never get out. And, and that I mean, qualifies, yeah. It's That's... one thing after the next. And of course, we live in LA right by Palos Verdes where they have Trump Los Angeles, which is his course here. Yeah. Oh yeah, that's right. Trump has lied about how much the course is valued at to the tune of almost fifty million more than its value, trying to get more money out of the Wait, government. Oh, that much? That I mean, that's that's significant. I mean, I feel like if it was any less, who cares? But I mean, wow. And like, 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 like we say, like, to, uh, I mean, there's a ton. To make this political, obviously, but right. And 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 for for the listener, I don't want you all to think that I am like the biggest Trump hater nor the biggest Trump lover. I, I'm really neither, and I'm being completely honest. I didn't vote in 2016, so hate me for that if you want. But, you know, bottom line was me I had a great choice, right? I mean, we didn't have a great choice. I mean, you Canadians, you got it lucky up there, dude. Oh, we have it lucky? Yeah, it's, it's, so, it's so easy being America light, just sitting up there, you know, pointing a lot of fingers, especially now. It's, it must be great. You guys, but, not to go on a tangent, you guys don't realize how bad our prime minister is. He's just a oh, pretty I've, boy. I've, I've seen, I've seen a little bit. <laughs> Wait a minute, isn't your current prime minister the uh, Trudeau, like that super progressive fella? Yeah, like everyone, all the other countries love him because he's like some pretty boy snowboard instructor. But like, he he doesn't know what he's doing. Like he's at least as bad as Trump. Now people are sort of oh, turning well, against yeah. him. Well, he sounds he's like not, it. He's not, he's not Benito Chito. Don't don't get me wrong, but I mean, at the same time, like like. The, at least half of our country is in a huge love affair with Trudeau, and no, I feel exactly. like that obviously with Trudeau for what he is, most of the world is in love with Trudeau because like the, that's the what, benefit. But do you, do you expect what do you expect a headline to come out of North Korea saying they're not in favor of him? Yeah, yeah, no shit. I mean, it's just <laughs> like that's just there. That, so who, Zach, I'll fire a question at you, Zach. Is it is it essentially that he's like your Obama, if you will, where he wins everybody over with his charm and his and his public image and likability, but behind the scenes, he's just kind of dicking things up anyway. Exactly. That kind of- that, that's spot hey, on. But, <laughs> but the, the good thing for us is, unlike you guys, we're not the most important country to the entire world. So all that matters hey, is that hey, people like us. Important. Thank you. We just don't want anyone nuking us. So as long as, as long as he makes people happy, we're good. But I have a question 
regarding the uh, Trump stuff, do you know if they've had any correspondence between them since the book? Rick has been very publicly baiting him on Twitter and and through the, the newspapers and every other which way that he can get in his eyeballs. He had LA Times reporters at his book signing that I went to. That was kind of where I reconnected with him before I pitched the interview to him. He says, I will play you for a hundred grand, Don, and I will beat you. But we gotta play fair. There's gonna be rules officials. We're gonna have cameras. You can't Same. get around you can't get around the cheating with me. You may be able to get around it with your business buddies who don't want to call you on it because they they need your money. I don't care. Hundred grand straight up, you play me fair. And Rick does give him credit in the book. He says he's probably if not the best golfing president we've ever had, at least in the top couple. That's what I because hear. That's what's so crazy. Time. And he owns golf courses. I mean, none of these other guys have owned golf courses and been able to play on them their whole life. So he's definitely exactly. good. Oh, say that's what's partly crazy about his whole cheating thing is that he's not even a bad golfer. Now listen, no. I, now, hold on. I don't want to draw the comparisons to a certain other world leader who he's been chatting with, but also it's been told that uh, Kim Jong, whatever the child's name is, see, I don't Kim even Jong-un. remember what their names are. Yeah, <laughs> Kim Jong Un. Yeah, when he goes out there and plays, he literally gets eighteen hole in ones because if anyone around him says otherwise, they're killed. Now, I'm not saying Trump's like that. He did get 18 hole in ones. He's the best. But there's, but there's certainly the, like I said, the Mr. Burns uh, colliery here, where it's just like it's slicing towards the woods, and all of a sudden, like somebody with binoculars, like, oh, it's a brilliant place, or it's coming back right into the family, and there it is, and then, and then just next thing you know, when nobody's there, I get that. Um, but my question is, um, well, I, I would say this certainly, this new news colors things for me and murkies them in a different way, in that. I've done extensive reports and papers for a degree before on our golfing presidents and how good they were and what their tendencies were and everything. And if leading up to right now, so far leading up to this book, Trump has been, according to a index and uh, and uh, eyewitness reports, our best golfing president. That's not saying that he's. It's amazing. He's one of three single-digit handicaps that have occupied the presidency. Uh, JFK That's was a one big thing movie. Rick calls him on. I will jump in there. He enters scores and he cherry picks them into the golf index. So he's not giving you all of his crap round scores, man. He only gives you a handful each year. He'll I play. That's what we're supposed to do. Hey. Oh, okay. <laughs> I mean, he he often says that uh, 88 was a 73. He is one of these kind of whoa, guys. Whoa, now, whoa. That, that's, that's Rick. I'm, I'm Rick here. I haven't witnessed it, but Rick says he has plenty of people that have played and witnessed him that went on record and off saying that he surely fudges his scores significantly and that he claims he has 18 club championships to his credit and that most of them are, are straight-up fabrications. Like in Rick's, I've heard about Rick's, that. I've heard that it's part. Probably 16 or 17 of them can obviously be proven false. And one of them is in doubt. <laughs> so, Zach, Zach, I'm officially a plus one handicap. I think, according to numbers <laughs> that I've been missing out on. Oh my Are god! Because <laughs> I live in the I live in the low 80s to the point where I stop keeping score now. Maybe if I paid attention, I'd be shooting in the high 60s this whole time. I mean, you might on. be below scratch. <laughs> well, that's what a plus handicap is, sir. Oh, plus. Okay. Well, I my wanted bad. to ask you about knowledge of great golfing presidents because that's one of these things that I'm always geeking out on kind of playing the virtual matches in my head between all these presidents because pretty much what since Woodrow Wilson or Herbert Hoover or somebody they've all played pretty much. Tap. And Tap. 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 So 
from what I've read from a little bit of Riley's book and from some of my own digging, it seems like the best was somewhere around that era, right? The other best was, was it, was it Woodrow or was it, I can't remember which one it was. I know Dwight Eisenhower obviously was an avid golfer, but I don't know how great he was. According well, to Legend, that, what is. Of course. Yeah. Dwight uh, was big because he was a member at Augusta and uh, he installed the putting green by the Rose garden and stuff. And he was oftentimes because you know what he did, what I did when I was in high school, he walked around with a golf club in his hand, just as that it was his thing. Like he just loved golf or whatever. I mean, he was America's granddad and, and he was great at that. But when he came to golf, yeah, bogey golfer, probably. The thing Eisenhower was famous for was being our president who golfed the most. And then he was unseated highly by Obama. Obama, like, I, I don't know what years it ticked up, but it was a certain story where Obama started to golf a lot. Like, like it was almost like it was a, like the bug bit him twice or something. Like, he just started playing a shit ton, and it, like, eclipsed uh, Eisenhower to the point where, and, and then some. But, uh, but yeah, when it came to, Rick, Rick talks about Obama in the book. I guess Obama in eight years golfed more than any president, and Trump took him to task for that all through the election. But now Trump in four years is on on uh, pace to triple that number. I, I enjoy that. That's what executives and and movers and shakers should do. It's golf. It's it's like racquetball, squash, tennis, golf synchronized swimming whatever it's just whatever all these white collar sports are that people can partake in so zach what do you think i agree with you i've just been thinking this whole time to ask the question if kim jong-un and trump play a round of golf who will win trump <laughs> i feel like kim knows better than to truly step to trump if he says he won man but and i think it's most it, it attributes probably that Trump, I think, is a foot taller. I mean, that probably, I mean, it's just like the, some of these things are getting down to like really primal uh, type levels of like, why does this happen? Oh, it's because this. Really? That's it? Okay, well, that's just what the world really Kim might shoot an 18. Well, uh, Kim, Kim knows that he can, he can fire his little missile toys in the sea all he wants. But if he truly wants to come and play with the big boys in a war... He's going to get stopped, and it's not going to take that long. So that's all just for show of might to his people more than he's oh, yeah. fooling oh. anybody. Of course. And he it, still and shoots an 18. <laughs> yeah, he does still shoot an 18 or 19, depending on who he caps on. On bad in. day, 19. So, uh, so real quick, um, is there anything else we want to talk about with Rick Riley before we talk about uh, our next subject? I mean, because I feel like there's really two big names to talk about. I mean... Well, okay. Uh, I would say just to wrap it up, Rick has been so generous with his time that I've got to thank him on this podcast and say thanks for all you've done to help me out with this and, and with my business. But bigger than that, I would say the interview is really fascinating as well, probably more so than my re book review. So check it out on From the Back Tees. He dishes better than I could on all of these anecdotes. But I mean, just if you don't know the name Rick Riley... This is a man that's golfed with multiple presidents. This is a man that's golfed with every great golfer you can name. He's golfed with Arnold Palmer. He's got anecdotes about that. And there he's, he's golfed with Tiger. He's golfed with all these cats. He's friends well, the with guy, these people. 
He, he's you up know. there. He's up there with like Al Michaels, Vin Scully. When you really break down the body of Rick Riley, you're just kind of like on one hand, it's like a, oh no shit, he was there, and then you start to look at everything he did. You're like, oh my god, this guy. By the time like I, I like I said, I'm I uh, I'm in my mid thirties. I graduated class of 2003 in high school in America, but I I sincerely like know I knew Rick Riley back in 2002. Like, Rick Riley was, like, his name was in cement back then. I mean, the guy's, like, the pro's pro when it comes to what doesn't he do? What doesn't he write? What doesn't he know? Who isn't he friends with? Where doesn't he go? Well, and unlike so many of these other sportscaster, sports writer guys, he's not just a stuffed shirt that's trying to make sure he doesn't lose his job or piss anyone off. He, The word he used, and I said it already, is irreverent. He says that his mentor was the great golf writer Dan Jenkins, who was the former editor of the back page before he was at Sports Illustrated. And he just stopped. Oh, yeah. Jenkins is phenomenal. And Jenkins' big shtick was he was funny, he told it like it was, and he didn't care if it pissed you off. Because the thing was, he wasn't trying to be mean, but he wanted to tell the truth. He didn't want to write fluff so that he wouldn't get in trouble with the PGA or Augusta or whoever. Or tiger or jack or whatnot he wanted to write true sentences that the guy paying three bucks that bought the sports illustrated could appreciate and not feel like they're just being fluffed or fake news to watch the next tournament so rick took that ball and ran with it and i think that's why he is a more important voice and a much more entertaining voice in the in the sports media world than so many of these modern guys oh absolutely yeah so probably the best. I would say, though, if you're interested in politics, if you're interested in golf, and if you're interested in seeing Trump exposed for all of his many shenanigans, Commander-in-Chief's worth a read. I am interested overall. The best part is <laughs> the fact that introduces owner of Sports Illustrated. That's owner. Owner of a publication. <laughs> I still like that. <laughs> well, the one last one is uh, Trevino gets into the book, and Rick ran into Lee one day golfing at a club, and he says, it was a Trump club, and he goes, hey, what'd you shoot today? And he goes, I shot a 79. And he goes, wow, Lee, this was late, in, you know, like after Lee was already off the PGA and on the Champions Tour. Because that's pretty damn good. He goes, yeah, Mr. Trump ran into me after the round. He asked me what I shot, and I told him, and then he introduced me to the next guy. He goes, this is Lee Iacocca, famous golfer. He, or, I'm sorry, Lee Iacocca, Lee Trevino. He just shot a 74. And then he goes, uh, Don, he's like, just roll with it. And then the next guy, hey, this is Lee Trevino, famous golfer. He shot a 70. And he goes, by the time I leave here, I'm going to hold the course record at the end of the day. Man. So, <laughs> this is how Trump rolls. He, they call him double down. That's what Rick says. All his friends call him double down. He doubles down on every lie. He doubles down on every embellishment. And in his words... You want to make it look the best it can look. You don't want to it's, – it's branding to him. He doesn't even consider it dishonesty. He just considers it brand embellishment. Yeah, look, I, always, I didn't vote for Trump, but I, I will admit I was – I call myself a Trump apologist because the whole time I'm sitting here going like, hey, I don't mind if this guy's president, but if we get him, we're going to get what we fucking asked for. I mean, and we are, which is much to the chagrin of a lot of people. I get it. I just don't like the fact that we're in such a pushback, contrarian, there has to be a, a tails to the head of the coin every single time argument. I mean, you, you can't even, you, it, it's literally, you can't even breathe without like that, the opposite happening to you. So 
I mean, that, that's why we, we try to maintain no politics on this whatsoever. But at the same time, I would be like, oh, no, there's, there's, there's a lot to dive into that's worth diving into. And we might find out we might tip our hand in terms of who we are, per se. But at the same time, that's not the point. The whole point is to bring, like, good content. And that's why Tucker is the, uh, the, the bucket that's going down in this like, amazing well of all these things that we got with Rick Riley. and uh, There may and be five busting around the water, but, you know, I'm willing to get, get that deep dive in there. Call me Baby Jessica. I will go down that well for you guys. <laughs> uh, Zach, sorry, that, that, that might be too deep a pull, but uh, there was a uh, – I don't know I don't know where it happened in America, but uh, Baby Jessica Texas. fell down. Texas, little girl fell down a well. Sorry, Jessica, if you're grown and you heard this golf podcast. I'm sorry, dude. <laughs> if she's one of the 13 people listening right now who are not pounding their uh, car stereos saying like no I know Jessica oh she will be so pissed off it was America's <laughs> sweetheart <laughs> I guarantee you baby Jessica works for H&R Block or something right now it's like gotta be so in between and boring Zach I'm sorry if you, all, if you just google baby Jessica that's you won't find any like Michael Jackson songs or anything inappropriate but a girl fell down like a concrete in well and she was stuck down there for like two or four two or three days or something and uh and that became like uh the nation it was like in 1990 or 91 okay. and that became the and i was like seven years old at the time so i'm sitting there going like oh my god that could have been me or that could have been my girlfriend i don't know I, could have been know. baby jerry <laughs> yeah it could have been baby jerry so i uh, uh <laughs> Baby Jessica, I have not heard that phrase or thought about that news story in God, man, decades, man, decades. <laughs> just, just leave it to your crusty old new correspondent to drop all the hot bars on you guys. You know, that's what I do. Yeah. Well, I like the fact I like the fact that you use the word crusty old and new in order, and it's all apt. <laughs> Before we get to anything else, I don't know if Jerry, you realize Tucker's a Renaissance man. And I don't know if you've heard his freestyle rapping, but I gotta give it a shout out. It's some all time stuff. Thank you, man. I appreciate that. Yeah, I, uh, I'll, I'll fuck the chest on it a little bit. You know, I'm surely the most Nicolas Cage looking mofo to ever all <laughs> freestyle rap battle championships in four states. It's true. Uh, You're right. He, he is an unassuming average looking white dude. You're right. That's why it's perfect. <laughs> I, I got into rapping and freestyling specifically back in high school because I was doing theater and improv and improvisational comedy specifically. Were you and I started realizing, well, that, were you groundling? Uh, I wasn't groundling, but I was studying it in high school. I, I did oh. private, private lessons. I studied it in college. And I, didn't know if you, I, I didn't know if you paid like the 300 bucks a lesson to the ground. <laughs> I've to, thought to, about to, it still. Friends, I got a couple friends that do groundlings in Upright Citizens Brigade and some of this other stuff out there, and they still oh, think. Oh, I love those guys. Yeah, it'd be fun. But so I had a band, and it's every time that the guys would get a guitar solo or a drum solo or this and that solo, I'd want my own solo. And so for me, the solo became a freestyle rap throwdown for as long as I could go, and we'd just jam out and. I started realizing that though it was fun to just freestyle about whatever and let the mind go, that I was really into wisecracking, telling jokes, withering people with punchlines, and that all seemed to equal battling. So it became a lot of braggadocious talk, and then it became a lot of challenging someone from the audience to come up and take a crack at me. And it all just kind of naturally back in that 90s era of Eminem and all that became the next challenge. Spaghetti. 
That's right. Mom, spaghetti. Everything's spaghetti. I'm always ready. It's like everybody everybody thought they could do it the minute that he proved that white men can rap, you know? So it was like third base didn't get us over. Beastie Boys didn't quite get us over. Third base. Oh, my God. You know? Vanilla Ice surely didn't get us over. Snow, your Canadian friend, he didn't get us over. Nobody, you know. <laughs> Snow. Oh, None of these guys got us over. But M got us over, and you know, Eight Mile was where it became normal to see all different kinds of clownish cats getting up and taking a crack at all the tough black gangster dudes. And I was living in St. Louis, Missouri at the time, where it was a very polarized racial dynamic there. You know, even before all the first stuff. Yeah, even before Ferguson, it was very much right split down the middle, northeast for black, southwest for white. And you really didn't cross the line, but there was one point in the city where everybody would come to the cool nightclubs and you could do this where all the city black cats and all the suburban white cats come and meet in the middle. And I started going there and it was, it was literally the crossroads of the crossroads. And we were doing it at night, night after night, week after week. And it became this all consuming thing I was doing besides playing street music all day, every day up above these nightclubs. I could sit out with my guitar and play and rap and freestyle. And they'd see me all day walking by. And then that night I'd sneak down to the club and the guy that was begging for change outside is now kicking your ass on the stage. And that was how That sounds exactly almost like when I lived in Baltimore. I mean, I was a spectator, not a part of that per se, but I mean, and I like to brag about living in Baltimore, and that was before the riots, and that was a shithole. All my best friends and best memories live in Baltimore, Maryland, and they all agree, oh yeah, it's a cesspool. It's it's terrible. (laughs) I have have one friend who's from outside of uh, St. Louis that I met in the Golf Academy. He's a really sweet dude, and... uh, He's uh, he's just, you know, white, white piece of chalk like us, you know, just a regular dude, just average American, what have you. Uh, and Zach, Canada's America light, so, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll give you an, uh, you know, you get half carte blanche. Okay, perfect. But, I mean, I, I have heard how, like, racially, like I said, crossroad or crossroads, like you said before, Ferguson, how Missouri is not necessarily, you know, anything that's just like you know drive by and say like oh no there's no problems here there's no nothing here i mean there's there's hotbeds everywhere i mean it's vacation with chevy chase where they get broke down in east st louis on their first vacation and he's like (laughs) excuse me do you know the way back to the highway and they go what you looking at honky i mean it's like that and it's still like that in 2019 man honey we gotta get out here before we get shot i mean it's 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 very much Southern cracker white people and black folks that want nothing to do with that. And they are going toe to toe, day in and day out. That is what goes on there. And the thing is, I was neither because I moved there when I was 10 from Portland, Oregon. So my original birthplace was a fairly progressive place. Oregon is liberal. Oregon is like libertarian almost. It's like very much. you You know where I'm from. I don't think he realizes. No, are you? Where are you from? Are you are you you county up abandoned dunes, right? Was that yeah, was that? I'm from, I'm from the area, so I mean, I mean, I'm like backwater Oregon. I'm, I'm a, we're part of the. As I told one of our golfers today, we all had gun racks in our trucks, you know, in high school or whatever. But I mean, it's offset with all the hipster angst of the liberal progressive side of Portland and the University of Oregon Eugene. So. Well, it's funny. So tell me, because I was born in Forest Grove, which is surely backwater. Oh, I love Forest Grove. Oh, That's where I was born. So where are you from? Well, I'm from uh, uh, born in John Day, but I only lived there, I guess, like two weeks or something. 
Uh-huh. And then I lived my first four years of my life in Oregon, uh, yeah, in Oregon, in uh, in Portland, like out in like um, uh, it was out near Clackamas Town Center. And then, that's uh, not that far from where I grew up, bro, at all. I grew up in East Moreland, which is now kind of yuppie, but basically it's Northeast Portland. Um, back when I was young, it was like middle and a little bit of lower and not much upper class living there, but like pretty firmly middle. And now, due to all the growth economically, it is like middle to mostly upper class people it's living so, in this It's so funny, Zach, that he's, he's, I hate to say it, I mean, I hate to say it, hate to say it. He's a Portland guy. He's an Oregon guy. I know. Uh, I don't know if. I don't know if he knows Nolan on our, our team or whatever, our Tiger writer, but I mean, he's a Portland guy, and he oh, writes okay. he writes more about the Blazers than about Tiger, and right now, Tiger is still the soup du jour. I mean... Well, now, now you got my heart, because when I was a kid, that's full disclosure about golf. My dad, we lived right by the East Moreland, or the West Moreland golf course, the public courses. We're right on the fence line. We're very close. My dad played there. He's a realtor. He wasn't a good golfer, but he did deals on the golf course. That's how he made all his money was letting these guys kick his butt and then they'd buy a house from him. So I put that in a piece on back tees. My first job as a kid was selling lemonade at the ninth hole of this golf course on the fence line. So my dad would bring him by. Me and the neighbor girls would be like, lemonade, we got cookies, we got iced tea. And we'd make like 50 bucks off of my dad and his clients buying lemonade while they were playing golf. And my dad says to me, son, you want, you want golf lessons? Do you want to learn, like, be, be a golfer like your daddy? And at eight years old, I go, dad, why would I want to play that fat old man sport? That was my introduction to golf right there. Screw that. I don't want to play that fat old man sport. And sure enough, you know, by the time I was a fat old man, I really regretted not taking him up on that. Because as a kid in Oregon, in Portland, it was all Blazers all the time, dude. There wasn't anything else that mattered. Oh, yeah. Football was distant second. And that was about it, man. I don't really think there was anything else anybody cared about where I lived except for Blazers basketball and Ducks football. And please tell me, I mean, I'm not going to guess your age or whatever, but do you have or your parents have any inclination of Portland Mavericks baseball at all? Please say I yes. remember a little bit. I remember the Portland Beavers minor league baseball team. Going okay, well, yeah, we all do. Oh, yeah. And and, uh, and the Winter Hawks. I remember our minor league hockey team, the Winter Hawks. I knew the Portland Winter Hawks. Oh, yeah. Oh, heck yeah. Oh, yeah. They... Zach, sorry. Feel free to come on in here and uh, tell us. Zach, you love hockey, dude. Yeah, now, man. Portland Winterhawks. Now we're talking. They were the (laughs) Winterhawks. I remember my first hockey fight. You know, that was the only reason I even wanted to go to the hockey game. I was like, Dad, when's the fight going to break out? He goes, oh, just wait, man. And it's going to happen. Oh, oh, there it goes. I'm like, this is like two minutes in the game. I'm like, dang, man. It's like UFC. You had the Blazers playing in the Rose Garden, and then you had the Winterhawks playing in the Coliseum, like right across the highway. And by the way, folks, if you don't know about the Portland Mavericks for baseball, I encourage you. I'm pretty sure it's on Amazon Prime Video if you happen to be one of those types of members. And you know what? Grow up. You should be. It's worth it. But it's, there's a documentary out there called The Battered Bastards of Baseball. And it is just about uh, uh, Bing Russell, Kurt Russell's dad, and how he brought this baseball team independently to Portland, Oregon, because they would not let him come into the bigs whatsoever. They would not, MLB had their like doors shut so tight, they would not let him exist. And he invented essentially a team and a league, and he whooped MLB minor league's asses until the MLB sent a bunch of pros down to destroy him and then bought his team out because they essentially gave him an offer 
based off of the value of the team times three, which the team wasn't worth anything. But legally, when they give you three times the value in court, you can't say no to that. So essentially, his dream just literally was ripped from his fingers and disappeared. And this is like 1977. I, I do know what you're talking about now. I've seen a bit of that, Doc. I am just turning 40 in a month, so I didn't quite remember that era per se. But it was it was a it was a folk tale when I was a kid, and I do remember watching some of the doc and thinking this is an amazing story. You're gonna make me go and check it check it again and watch the whole thing. Played at the same park the Beavers play at. Uh, the park's still there. I'm proud to say, at age nine or ten as a boy, I went to see Lilith Fair there because my. <laughs> My lesbian mother was at work, and her partner at the time, I forget who she was, took me there, and I just sat off to the side reading Mad Magazine while I was watching MTV do stuff, and I'm just like, I'm 10 years old, and I'm just really confused. I'm at this... You get out to map while the Indigo Girls are duetting, dude. Nice. Dude, it was Indigo Girls. It was Sarah McLaughlin. I mean, it was Murderer's Row for, like, Lilith Fair's peak year, so to speak. But uh, but all that being said, it's, it's a killer documentary, even to the point where my girlfriend's uh, dad... Uh, Jim Moore, who was a uh, pitcher at, oh God, he was like uh, uh, University of Cal, like Santa Barbara, or uh, he was a gaucho or a banana slug, I don't remember. Um, but at, at any rate, he said that, like, he would, he told me, I showed him the documentary, and he tells me he watches the documentary once a week because Frank Peters, the guy who wound up managing the, the I almost called him the Orioles, excuse me. That's a slip of the old tongue right there for watching <laughs> so many games in Baltimore, excuse me. Uh, but he, um, he said that he'd be, 20 years old, drunk, leaning over the rail, yelling at Frank Peters, the manager, saying, hey, my college roommate who's the relief pitcher, you got him starting shortstop. What the fuck's your problem, Peters? And Peters, after all, looking at him and be like, hey, kid, shut up. And it's just like, that's just kind of how the day went. It was just kind of how independent baseball, it was, it was, it, pretend you existed in the city the very first year pro wrestling ever existed. That's exactly what the Portland Mavericks were. If they, like, all of a sudden, like, oh, you were beating them with home runs and they, like, shut down your home run hitting, they beat you with steals the next day. They beat you with batting average. They beat you while doing cocaine, while not having any bench to sit on. It was just, like, a wall to lean against. I mean, it was it was the epitome of, like, adult sandlot kick-ass baseball. And they were so good at it that the MLB had to come in and say, you don't exist anymore. And and it, it's, it's, it's written all it, – obviously, every – the one reason – and we'll get to our next part of uh, uh, Tucker's uh, piece here. But the thing that bugs me the most about documentaries is they're always made and viewed in a certain direction. Like whatever you watch, it's skewed a certain way. It's going to be make you feel a certain way about something. It's very opinionated in its own side. And this one, even though I don't like to say that we would see something that is an, op an opposing piece or whatever, when you watch this, it really – and I'm a huge baseball fan. It makes you hate big old corporations, big old slow bad stuff. It just and and I and I love baseball for what it is. I cuz I know what it is. I know it's the starchy stupid whatever it is, but this starchy stupid organization destroyed something that was pretty fucking cool. And that well, was the Portland Mavericks. I'll, I'll go to it. I think that whether you're talking about baseball, basketball, golf, battle rapping, whatever. It always gets perverted by the owners or the promoters or the money people. It never what? gets perverted yeah. by the talent. The talent is what makes it entertaining and it's what makes it exciting to participate in. And the minute that these participants, these talented individuals start realizing that the money is being stacked against them 
in order to, to basically buff out all the rough edges that these rich people don't want there to create a brand that they feel is the most marketable and lucrative for them. And, and that it's not fair. You mentioned pro wrestling. That's battle rap in a nutshell. It's all about the promoter's guy that they want to prop up. Like, it's boxing. They use boxing as their metaphor for everything. They prop up their guy. And I was never their guy. So I I saw this so clearly, unlike some of these other cats that had favor with the promoters who might have been a bit blind to it even. They they propped up up their own egos enough because they were talented to think that just because they had talent and they gave it their all that night – that's why they won. When in reality, I, I could be a judge for Battle Rap Idol or something. I, I call it right. I, I would never give myself a win if I knew I didn't win it. But I know how to judge these things, and they weren't being judged in any kind of fair, balanced, accurate way. Now, I could still go back because I had no pride, but they ruined people that didn't want to keep after it because they're like, man, this shit's fucked up, man, this isn't real. You know, all they want to do is put their boy on and try and get him in the next thing. And I go, you're right. So He's right. You, you got to go that much harder in ham to the point where they understand they'll lose money from losing their audience because their audience is so disenchanted that they keep cheating the, the one who's winning and the audience for all that. So, you know, I don't want to get on a whole battle rap. But that's sports in general, guys. I mean, that's all well, sports. sports- Sports is, as it should be, a meritocracy. If Bill Belichick's son was on the Patriots and he was a quarterback, well, guess what? He ain't starting because he's, he's not good enough to start. That's just the way it goes, as it should be. You see it in professional sports, and I'm mostly skewing American because that's what I know the best, but it's, it's very much the best person for the best job. If one guy runs the 40 a second slower than the other, then – you have no reason unless you want to get fired to put the slower guy in. It's, it's, it's all about who does their job the best. And unfortunately, in a morality sense, that doesn't apply to everything. So, uh, Zach, do you have anything for Tucker real quick before we start talking Peter Kessler, the golf channel man? No, we could talk Peter Kessler. Am I missing something? Oh, no, I didn't know. I mean, not to say, I mean, we talked to Rick Riley a minute ago, and then we talked about some other stuff, but I didn't know if there was anything you wanted to squeeze off right now to ask uh, TB. No, we're good. We can move to the next topic. Well, did you talk to Rick St. Louis in, in Portland, a new one with the freestyle? Is that where you, what, what you're talking about here? Yeah, I was thinking no, that. Not, was... not quite, not quite, but now that you're thinking about it, and I know how freestyling goes, and I love freestylers, if we give him 20 minutes, and it's like... <laughs> He's gonna come up with like at least ninety more seconds than you thought of some brilliance. So don't you worry about that. No, I was uh, just thinking Tucker's wearing the uh, L.A. Rams jacket, and it's just bringing me back to times of how the Saints got screwed. Shout out Saints. Times? What do you mean the times? Like this happens over and over or something? I mean, we should be the Super Bowl champs. Oh, is there is there a difference? Downey Gate A two. Come on, man. Come no. on. This is ridiculous. It's like it's like there's a recency that the Saints get screwed. It's not by the Come same on. person, first of all, or the same team, okay? If the Saints keep pointing fingers, it's never the same entity. Oh, uh, Goodell's okay. the worst. Well, yeah, he's not great. He ain't great. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna screw that. I'm not <laughs> Hey Zach, I'll just I won't even battle rap you. I'll just I'll just put it in this very short little song. Yeah, it'll be a one sided rap. When the Saints didn't block that kick. Oh, when the Saints <laughs> Didn't block that kick. Every screwball fan in New Orleans made up lots of loser shit. 
There you go. I'm done. <laughs> oh, damn. We're still the champs. Oh my god! That's good stuff. Oh my god. <laughs> I've been working on that one. Uh, you know, I've been working on that one. It's it's a new little number. It was pretty like, good. That's how that good. stuff works. Off the cuff. Oh my god, that works. <laughs> It was pretty good. It had a pretty good uh, rhythm to it. Oh, yeah. my God. Okay, so... We're going to be hip with the kids. All right, so we uh, we don't want to keep this one too long because we don't know if Skype's going to cut me off because evidently I'm some type of Microsoft bandit, uh, a Julian Assange style. But, uh, Tucker, you seem to know this feller by the name of Peter Kessler. Can you, and I'm sure you can, in, in the best... Like not, you don't have to sum it up. You don't have to cliff note it for us. Tell us about Peter Kessler a little bit. This guy, essentially, in terms of if you're at least, God, we're in 2019. If you're at least 30 years old and you're into golf, you have to know. He, he has to be one of the keystrokes on the original typewriter of your life. Who's Peter Kessler? Peter Kessler is the heart and soul of the original golf channel. And I don't use that as hyperbole. That is fact. Besides Arnold Palmer, who was the innovator of Golf Channel, and for those listeners that don't know, Arnold Palmer was the one who dreamed up Golf Channel. There was no Golf Channel before a retired Arnold Palmer said, you know what, I bet I could talk to NBC and we could do a full 24-7 golf stream all the time. And I bet I got enough rich friends who would help me make this happen and I could get producers and TV guys that I know, and I could make this a reality. So Arnold talked to a few people, but the most notable is a guy named Joe Gibbs, not the Redskins' former coach, but another Joe Gibbs. And not they, the NASCAR racing owner. <laughs> not NASCAR Gibbs. And they they created this idea, pitched it, got it greenlit, and NBC was going to co-sponsor it. And they went first to Peter Kessler, who was a good friend of Arnold Palmer's. Now, Peter Kessler was an avid golfer his whole life. He grew up uh, near Pebble Beach. He went to a private school there, uh, played Pebble back when you could walk on Pebble without a tee time and just play as many holes as you liked. He learned how to play on Spyglass Hill. This is his legacy. It was He was a child that was so consumed with golf and so smart that he became a true encyclopedic human being about golf and became surely one of the foremost authoritarians on golf history of anyone on the planet by the time he was out of high school. And again, that, that's not hyperbole. This is fact. He proved it. He knew everything from golf's inception from the very beginning of time all the way through all of the professional years before him. And he was a you know high school kid in the 60s. And then all the way up to the modern stuff. So when Arn and him became friends, he wasn't even a golf uh a journalist or broadcaster he was a lawyer and like i told you guys off air he had worked for the rothschild family who was essentially the illuminati confirmed i mean they're they're them they're the trillionaires that run the world i, mean, I found that i found that out illuminati, how are you doing? i found it i found that right out before i got to know the rothschilds personally because I, I i happened to bump into them in colorado how big they were from the picketers first i'm like wait whoa whoa you're just a per you have picketers just everywhere you go that's yeah. Heavy. They, they make Trump look like he's, you know, a Payless shoe store by comparison to how much money and influence they have. I mean, he's baby Jessica down the well begging for a rope compared to them. So, but, 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 you know, I, listen, we're, but what, what we're more focused on, what, 
Peter Kessler had a fall from grace at some period, at some time. I don't know when it was because I feel like I know Peter Kessler, the man that was, and I know the Peter Kessler I see on Twitter who has like as many followers as me. And it's just, and it's very much like, is this somebody running a joke account? Because if you don't like Randall Chambly, Peter Kessler is like the uh, stay up late at night triple X version of like debate. I mean, which isn't, it, it's, you know how the ire goes with social media or whatever. I, that's why I try not to be too stupid and I try not to put myself out there too much because I know you can get lit up by somebody. That's why I'm, I'm apologizing still to Jason Sobel softly because I didn't, I didn't agree to something he said and not that he wasn't wrong, but he didn't defend his opinion properly. And that was my argument was he wasn't defending his opinion. But in the end, his opinion was correct. So I should shut my mouth. And I've been hey trying guys, to take help for that. The list of I've been blocked by on Twitter. It is a pretty marvelous list. Bill Cosby blocked me on Twitter. All right? That's, that's not a No, that's a good thing. That's a good thing. Tucker, if you want to be, you want to be a heterosexual a Christian going to church, a one-dimensional American, you better hope Bill Cosby blocks you on Twitter right now. I mean, no, are you kidding me? Before he, this is before he got out, and I was calling him out seven years ago, and he blocked me on Twitter. I got, I got well, James You're an insider. You're an insider. That's it. James Fry, a million little pieces author, he's blocked me on Twitter. Lord Jamar from Brandon Nubian, he's blocked me on Twitter. I, I, I don't even realize I'm blocked on Twitter by these famous people when I'm trying to do research on them. Exactly. Well, you don't know. You I always wondered. I always wondered. It's like if somebody—it's like I was saying, Zach. We need to practice with this or whatever. But if I were to block you, you don't get a notification that you're blocked by somebody. Until no, yeah. Go look at their profile, or until you say something. Okay, good. That you know what—that's good because the four, the literally the four people I blocked were people I didn't really follow anyways. So I mean, what? It's just one of those like I don't need to seek out to see if they block me back. I don't give a crap. They're vanity searching their name. That's why they block you, is they vanity search their name like we all do, and they want to see what's out there on their mentions, and then they see you put up something that they got singed by, and you're gone. I, Twitter is a, nothing but shit talk. That's what it's for. It's for shit talk and self-aggrandizement. That's all it's for. I mean, let's just be he, you know, he put it so well, and I can't, I can't pour cold water on that because Twitter makes me feel good sometimes. You know, that's Twitter's my, Twitter's my, like, Twitter's my, as Dana Gould said, you have when you open up your glove box a uh, a big salt lick sized Xanax, and you just like whenever you're feeling low, you just take a big old lick off of it, and all of a sudden you're like, ha ha, okay, I'm good for a couple hours or whatever. That's what Twitter is. We see it with our president of the United States. We see it with what? Oh, which by the way, I meant to say, um, going back, I'm sorry to the Rick Riley thing. I know Rick's been trolling the president on Twitter. Uh, I don't know if we, I can ask the two of you. It doesn't matter if you're American, what you vote or whatever, but obviously the president tweets a lot of stuff. I don't see him reply to anything ever, or, or unless it's like somebody's stating something bold and he's attacking them. But I don't see him ever banter or converse. So I don't think trolling the president, uh, even Rick, I don't think that's very useful or helpful. I know it, it burned like two calories for Rick, so it's not it's worth a try. But I mean, what say you guys? It's selling Rick's book on the hashtags of these troll posts, but no, he's not got a response. Somebody asked him that at the book party. They go, "Has has Don responded on Twitter yet?" And he goes, "No." And I'm just waiting for that one tweet because it's going to put me in a whole nother tax bracket. I'm going to be oh, drinking corded beer for the rest of my life. He goes, I'm going to be up there with Meryl Streep and Robert De Niro and Colin Kaepernick and so on and so forth. He goes, but I, I've got my response. He says, I already know. I got the, the tweet in the chamber for when he hits me going, Rick Riley is the worst sports writer ever. You go, I read his book and it's trash. He says, my reply is going to be, all right, come on. Who read it to you? 
Kessler, because you asked about Kessler and Twitter. Kessler didn't even get on Twitter until probably like 06, 07, and it was after he had already been mysteriously dismissed from Golf Channel. And like I said, he got on in 94. He was on the very first telecast. He interviewed Aaron Palmer on the very first show. He hosted their three most popular and watched shows from 94 till about 2001. Golf Channel Live, Golf Channel Academy, which is still on, and the Golf Channel a call-in show, the, the listener call-in show. He interviewed everyone on that show, every single legend of the game from past and present. He was the guy. He was surely their most talented. He was their most knowledgeable. He was their most prepared. And he was the least reverent, the most irreverent guy. He was willing to fire hardball questions based from a place of integrity, not trying to humiliate or or make make them the butt of the joke, but always willing to be a reverend if it needs to be. And not being like Johnny Miller, right? Right. I mean, being more Rick the, the, whole time I'm, I'm, the whole time I'm trying to sit here going, like, there's a difference. There's a difference between, because some of these guys say the same thing, because I, I really do like Johnny Miller, and I do like really like Peter Kessler, but there's a difference. There's a big difference in their verbiage. Well, and Johnny Miller, for better or worse, was an old goat that was trying to make sure these other guys didn't take his place on the Mount Rushmore of golf. Jack Nicklaus is the same way, in my opinion. Jack loves to kind of needle Tiger while still trying to act diplomatic about it because he didn't want all his records broke. He's made that real clear. These guys got egos, and these guys want to be considered the greatest forever. And I think it's sad because Kessler understands I am the greatest at what I do. You are all the greatest at what you do. Well, why don't we share the wealth a little bit here, guys? Like, it shouldn't have to be me versus him. Like you say, there's always some pushback on every point somebody makes, or there always has to be this, you know, push and pull. Jack, you're the greatest of your era. Arn, you're the greatest of your era. You know, we go back further. Bob Jones, you're the greatest of your era. Tiger is the greatest of his era and still. Hogan, Nelson, Sneed, name them, yeah. Right. I think that was more Kessler, but he also was very much about the ethics of and the, the you know integrity of the game itself, and that's what eventually got him canned. Was Arn after his wife Winnie passed on tragically at a young age from cancer, was very distraught and was not in a good place emotionally or with uh, imbibing. He was drinking a lot, and people were coming at him all the time trying to get after him about all these things they wanted him to do for them. And one of them was Callaway had a driver that they were trying to make legal for pros to compete with and to be considered a, a driver that everyone could put in their bag that could be counted for official handicap scores. The technology was judged to be not legal by the golf standards of the day. They had said, I asked him, okay, explain this to the layman here who doesn't know what's legal and what's not. He said, essentially, there was a trampoline-like effect that was caused by the larger sweet spot that made are you talking about the ERC two? Yes, you are correct. That is the, that is the club. That that trampoline like effect can make a hat golfer blast, you know, straighter and as far as someone who actually nails the ball. Not by a lot, but there's enough there that it would bring into question whether they were getting an unfair advantage from the technology. It was by. I remember the numbers exactly. The year was 2000, 2001. It was between the Callaway VFT Hawkeye and the ERC2, which the RNA allowed the ERC2, but the numbers were 
zero wait no it was point eight zero five and point eight zero zero that's what we're talking about in terms of face thickness i don't remember if it was centimeters inches dilation whatever i don't remember if it was inner outer whatever but those were the numbers those were the numbers the erc2 exceeded whatever this like super thin whatever was yes right that, that was back when i was caddying back in the day at man and dunes when i saw like uh like rich guys showing up with like these were and people forget real quick sidebar uh inflation works in weird ways because back when the erc2 and the callaway vft hawkeye series came out they were selling those drivers for 500 bucks a piece fine that was just the going rate at the time whatever but since then drivers have actually been 400 a piece until this epic flash shit came out which i'll admit i hit one i love one i want to get one but at the same time you want to talk about inflation Candy bars are a buck sixty nine now. They used to be fifty cents. Gas is taxed. You can't include that or whatever. Bread is still two dollars a loaf or whatever. Golf, the the Pro V still is twelve dollars a sleeve. Ever since it was invented and brought to shelves in two thousand and two thousand one, in in the in the richest, most gouging commercial and recreational market out there, they have not fluxed hard on anybody whatsoever. I don't, I don't think that speaks to anything. I'm just saying, when it comes to the numbers, I, I often joke and tell myself, yeah, Pro V's, after tax, whatever, cost five bucks a ball. But they have yeah, since they've been invented. I think also, if we're just talking about Arnold's intentions for the ERC, it wasn't that he necessarily wanted to see people get any kind of an advantage. Golf was dying. You, you can recall that era. This is right around the millennium. It was dying as an industry and as a popular sport. It was becoming like an old man thing, like I was joking with my dad about. And I think Arnold's intentions, according to Peter in this interview I did with them, were to try and keep the game meaningful and growing in all ways, not just pro. That if the ERC makes the average hacker go out and play better amateur golf, which gets more people on the course, which keeps the industry going, that was Arnold's intention. However... He was being hit up by all of these sycophants who absolutely were trying to sell more golf clubs, and oh, it was sure. all bottom line. And Arnold was too boozed at the time to kind of see that what, no matter what his intentions were, he was going to be painted as someone who was advocating cheating, even though he was fully conscientious that they weren't okay with it in, in, in golf. Peter made some comments on Golf Channel on his editorial saying Arnold needs to back off this logic or else it will sully his rap. That singed Arnold, they had to have a combo. Peter says to me at that conversation, Arnold says, I know you're just looking out for me. According to Peter, Winnie, his wife, as she was dying of cancer, told Arnold that Peter was the one he should talk to for advice before he makes potentially stupid decisions. She signed off on Peter's authenticity as a peer and someone who surely was trying to help Arnold versus just suck him dry. So Arnold says to him, I think you're right. I get what you're saying, but people are breathing down my neck. You know you don't have a ton of friends here. He had a lot of jealousy. People were gunning for his spot. This is Peter. And he also wasn't that cozy with Joe Gibbs, the co-owner of Golf Channel. He says, a lot of people are gunning for you, Peter. Um, I need to get out of this, that's just position you put me in. We got to fix it. And Peter says, okay, well, we've got our State of the Union address. You come on every year and we do our interview. Let's sit down, we'll hash it out right there, we'll make it look real diplomatic, and then we're settled. And I'll, I'll throw you a softball. Arnold, I know I made some comments, I apologize if any of that came off too harsh. 
I know you're not trying to advocate cheating, but really you just want to see the game keep growing. You're passionate about the sport. You want the average amateur to have, you know, have every opportunity to succeed, but you also understand that this isn't legal. And so you're backing off the ERC. Arnold says, okay. Peter says, all you're going to respond is yes, we're going to shake hands. We're moving on. Then the night of that interview, Arnold shows up wasted and Peter had specifically said, do not come drunk because he knew that he couldn't control his answers if he was. He said he had a five-drink weave going. That's Peter's words. And he sat down. Five-drink weave. A weave. He was weaving to his chair. And he gave him the question. And Arnold looked at him and said, I get really upset when all these people say that I'm trying to advocate cheating. And it just makes me so mad. And if you say that to my face, I'm going to punch you right in the nose. And at that point, Arnold had stepped in his own shit. Like, there was nothing Peter could do to save him from that. That was on camera going live. But Peter, foolishly, by his own admission, said that he continued to press him to try and get the answer they'd already agreed with versus realizing that Arnold was belligerent and wasn't going to back off. That led to him and Arnold getting into a, you know, a series of uncomfortable-looking questions where it made Peter, the sober one, make Arnold look foolish and drunk. And because of that, all the other minions had all they needed to edge out Peter and they pretty much strong-armed Arnold saying, he made you look bad. We've got all this money. We'll pull it if you keep behind him because you know we don't like him. you, you got to let him go. By Peter's admission, he and Arnold were friends to the day Arnold died. They could continue to play golf. They could continue to eat dinner. They continued to be best of friends. But Arnold was put in a position like, we'll pull our money out if you don't let this guy go and replace him. And that, right around 2001, was the end of Peter Kessler, professional golf broadcaster. He, he had a, a serious XM golf show that was briefly syndicated after that. That was yanked away from him. Every time he tried to write something or produce something, and he produced 1,200 amazing golf documentaries that he had written and produced and directed that you can see on his Twitter page that you mentioned. He's putting them all out because he, he maintained the rights to these things. They're never shown on oh, golf. Oh, yeah. He's, They're he's, never he's, shown on golf channel. He's the keeper of so many things. That's why it's like, that's why I asked you, I'm like, he's considered the voice of so much, but it's like, what is it now since he's been like uh, so-called banished or whatever, so. Well, he, he was the narrator of HBO Sports. He called that, all those yeah. famous boxing fights. Yeah. You know, he, he did baseball docs about all the famous legends of the game. He knew all these people. But yes, the only thing he maintained from this were all those films that he produced and what was left of his reputation. Now we'll go to Twitter because I, I got to get there. About 06, he's, he had created the, the perfect club, which he does not even call the perfect club anymore. He makes that very clear. He don't want to be associated with it anymore. But he did indeed create it with folks, his friend. by the way, if you've stuck with us this long, this is the zenith, as I call it. Go ahead, Tucker. This is it. You remember those perfect club commercials that, that Peter produced and was involved with. It was the hybrid before it was called the hybrid. This was the hybrid club. He and a couple of designers created the most friendly hybrid club that there was for all golfers, the rescue club. So they sold about a third of a million of these. And sure enough, all the other golf companies, especially Callaway and others that he'd singed, conspired to make their own brand of it. And they had not gotten the patent on this thing officially lined up yet. So what, it, what ends up happening? Everybody has their own perfect club. And now it's called a hybrid. And all that money that the perfect club was making just disappeared. So he got upset and said, I'm done. I don't even know if I ever want to make another run and a comeback again. And in 06, his son, who had been his business partner on this, says, Dad, 
you're an amazing writer. You're an amazing producer and director. Here's your Twitter account. I built it for you. Get moving, man. Get going. And sure enough, Peter got on there, started posting his stuff, but also like any older person or any person, period, that gets on Twitter in that era, he fell into a lot of the pitfalls of it. And that is where a lot of the, the rest of the goodwill that he had left kind of went with him as far as these big stuff suit guys. He was willing to go and still, to this day, goes and takes on all of the Golf Channel commentators, famous golfers, business people. Oh, yeah. Positions of power who can surely make it impossible for him to get back in the door. And he just calls it like it is, like you're talking about when you're on there, like I'm talking when I'm on there. But again, I'm not trying to necessarily work for these cats, so I don't have any problem telling them like I, like I feel. And even putting my real name on it, I don't want to be mean, but I'm not afraid to tell Bill Cosby that he's full of it or whatever, you know? <laughs> Isn't it weird that golf is life and that's just how it still kind of processes? I mean... I, I, I don't hear – I have friends of mine who are in the tennis industry, and they don't say the same things about tennis interpretation of life or whatever. And once you turn, like, 25 and you want to be an adult and you want to play something other than bowling, you don't play basketball, you don't play baseball, you don't play football. There aren't too many things that we can all relate to if we want to still stay physically active or whatever. So, Zach. It's uh, funny you say that because I play oh. tennis, man. That's my other thing. I play tennis all the time now. I love it. It's a lot of fun. My wife and I are taking it together. We do it. I'm going to branch out on that. How you doing? I, I, I definitely need to uh, find me some tennis. So, Zach, uh, we, we actually we ran up to live here, but I'm actually thinking about let, we need to have Tucker back, back here in a week or two at least. At yeah, for minimum. sure. I don't, know what, I don't know what the, I mean, I don't know what the word is for at least. Uh, let's bring him back for some of oh, the sauciest of chili. I mean, this is uh, this is some hot talk here. This, for sure. Yes. <laughs> I, Tucker, you may may not be aware. I've been texting Zach a couple times during this whole time. A couple things you said right when you said it, I said it in all caps. Like that's gold. Like there were a couple things you said around me, just like, oh my god, are you kidding me? We got, we got. I mean, just in terms of what I feel like, not. And I'm not, I'm not looking at trying to manifest any hay out of this. I came into Zach, just honestly telling him I have no professional writing experience. I just have a lot of experiences. Maybe I can share them with you. And he was nice enough to bring me on the team. And Zach definitely has the eye of the tiger to know what to use and when properly. And even if I'm uh, just like a half-assed co-host of a podcast, that's all I bring to the website, whatever, whatever. I'm not even saying I'm a facilitator. This Tucker Booth guy, oh, he's got, as we say in the 70s, the balls. I mean, are you kidding? you, You offered, obviously, you answered all the questions that I had. And some insights and some pretty cool stuff. And then there were there were a couple like turns down some roads where I'm like, wow, that's a great view. I mean, my God, I don't even remember at the point when I told Zach, I'm like, this is gold. I I, 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 would, I would be like, wait, what was gold? I forgot what it was. <laughs> that might have been during that? the Bill Cosby blocking him section. Well, well that, that is that's the name of a song. That's the name of a song on my new record. It's also the name of a comedy bit that I regularly do at the clubs around town when I'm doing stand-up to scratch the itch with my friends. It's called Bill Cosby Blacked Me on Twitter. Be looking for that on my new record coming out later this summer. The album's called Sociopaths, a Comedy. Be looking for that. Going to be in store soon. We're putting a vinyl record out. Yay! Because, because evidently, now that, now that we're in the 21st century with Amazon and debit cards, we can create and pay for anything we want to and i and the, the the vinyl record sound is nice i do i do own a few myself uh 
Tucker, where can people find you quickest who are listening in their ears right now talk? Well, I am all over the place. If you really just want to find all the links, you can Google Tucker Booth, B-O-O-T-H, like telephone booth, Tucker rhymes with fucker, Tucker Booth, or you can do <laughs> Tucker, <laughs> Tucker Dale Booth. That's my middle name, Tucker Dale Booth. A lot of stuff comes up. Um, my my Twitter handle is Tucker Dale Booth, all lowercase. My Instagram handle, Tucker Dale Booth, all lowercase. I'm on Facebook, or I like to call it Farcebook, but I'm not on there much. So I'd say you want to holler at me there, hit me on the message thread, um, DM me. Uh, all the links are there. YouTube, I'm all over there. You want to see my rap battles. You want to see my albums. You want to see all this stuff. But I have two record labels I'm still repping. The original one out of St. Lou is called The Frozen Food Section. Our website is thefrozenfoodsection.com. <laughs> over 40 original alt-rap and hip-hop albums there, including 14 of my own. Um, also, my new label is called Tantrum Niche. That's Tantrum Niche, Niche, however you pronounce it. Tantrum, like a temper tantrum, N-I-C-H-E, tantrumniche.com. Every single album on there is is free, all of it. I'm talking over 25 hours of music completely free to download as zip drives. We rely entirely on PayPal donations from the fans, and we're making it work. We've had millions of downloads over the last 15 years doing this. It's amazing rock, hip-hop, folk, country, world music, all kinds of stuff. TantrumNitch.com, check that out. And then last but not least, I would say my new blog, Rappers Don't Golf, brought to you by From the Back Tees, is a pretty freaking big deal to me. If you run that hashtag, Rappers Don't Golf, into Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, etc., that will include all the new from the back to stuff, including all the old golf blogging and sharing I was doing with the hashtag as well. Tons of stuff on there, including my music and everything else. So check it all out. I definitely think you won't be disappointed. I'm really glad we got everything we could get out of Tucker in terms of him pimping himself right there because, Zach, regardless of whether how regular or irregular, we'd love to include Tucker we don't have to, uh, on one hand, deal with all that. And on the other hand, I mean, I hope people just hear his name. And like he said, just Google his goddamn name, folks. That's all you have to do. So It's an I'm easy name to remember. Folks, I'm not going to tell you folks where to find me at. You know where to find me. You know where our entity is. But before we go, I think our uh, founder, Zach, wants to do a... Uh, Canadian fun fact with our friend Tucker here in presence. So take it away, Zach. Yeah, so I don't know if you know this, Tucker, but every podcast we have a nice Canadian fun fact of the week so people could realize how great we are, basically. So, oh. Wait, hold on, Zach. I just got a text from Tucker. He just lost battery control. Like, I. uh, He's frozen. He's actually. He's frozen right here. Uh, Okay, so I'll give my fun fact back to you. It'll be like a replay. Okay. Okay, so we've got. Michael Jordan, LeBron James, and we're bringing it old school with Bill Russell. What do those three have in common? I'm sorry, I just had to take a picture of his frozen face and uh, you talk real quick. Uh, say it again. <laughs> what do What do Michael Jordan, Bill Russell, and LeBron James have in common? Michael Jordan, Bill Russell, and LeBron James have in common. Tall. Mm, yes, they're all tall. Um, we're getting there. Now, this, this might sound racist, but I'm just going to say in short, they're all black, uh, and they're all multiple championship winners, at least that four. That's true. Well, because, uh, uh, God rest his soul, uh, Havlicek passed away recently. A lot of people forget eight rings 
Bill Russell had nine rings. Nine rings! Jordan had six. Okay, so had it not been... Had it not been for a great Canadian man by the name of James Naismith in 1891, oh, these guys, no. these guys would not be playing basketball. Who knows what they would be doing? Who knows if this great sport would even exist if not for Canadians? I die. I just fell right into that like an idiot. Ontario-born wow. James Naismith. Remember the name? Absolutely. Uh, and listen, folks, I just got some texts from uh, <laughs> from Tucker. <laughs> this is how guerrilla warfare we are right now. He said, I just lost battery. Sorry. Tell everyone peace. And thanks, you guys, for having me. I love Tucker Booth. I love Nolan Smith. I love all our guys. I mean, we, we need to, if we don't get some, like, real hardcore solid, like, uh, like group chatting or something or anything like that, uh, I love I, I love, the, the, he said it best. He has a place. Tucker Booth is way too big for you and I, Zach. But both put together, we're both peons in his presence, and he has so much to offer. But he just wants to geek out on golf with us. I'm glad he jumped on our trampoline because he can stay here all day if he wants to. Yeah, he he could have gone for a while, and then he could have gone for an hour alone. Just all the different things he's done. All right, Zach, is there anything else? We, we've been going, this has been a long podcast, we've been going over an hour and ten, so uh, is there anything else uh, you want to say before we go off? No, I think we could uh, sign out. Oh, I guess one last thing I'll add is the Peter Kessler interview that Tucker did. It was a 90-minute oh, audio. Yeah. It was a 90-minute audio interview, so what we're going to do is we're going to post it as an episode of a podcast, the interview That's alone. right, yeah. He's he has oh my god not not to like oh my not to say he's taking shine away from us but man he is good he has he's got all the gets he asks all the questions I was just hoping I asked him the right questions and he's like a teammate of ours for crying out loud yeah I feel yeah. like Scott Pippen and he's Jordan or something or you're Jordan and he's Scotty Pippen and I'm Dennis Rodman you could tell he's been way, in Dennis Hollywood Rodman. for a while fair enough folks so Zach where can everybody find us other than you know what? We do need to do that commercial for Michigan Sports Entertainment. We oh, we'll get it. We'll, we'll get it eventually. Get we'll get yes. there. You could find us, though, at uh, fromthebacktees.com or through the Twitter at fromthebacktees. And you could find the rest of the group's Twitters through the About Us page. Yeah, Jerry Lou Looper one on Twitter. That's the main place you can talk to me. It was a lot of fun, guys. Tucker Boots great. From the Back Tees is great. We'll talk to you guys next time.